This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how to make work and life work when we're part of a dual career couple. When we think about what success looks like for many of us, it includes a dynamic career, a loving relationship, financial security, and maybe even the opportunity to parent a child or two or six. We choose partners who share those goals and work together to make smart choices that we think will land us where we want to go. Yet as time passes, so many of us find ourselves a lot less happy than we expected to be. Exhausted, resentful, lost, lonely, they're just some of the ways we describe ourselves, particularly around cocktails with our lady friends. Whether we're talking about our lives as working moms, our stalled careers, or as partners in long-term relationships. Fortunately, we have a new framework to help us navigate the journey of our lives together. Jennifer Petriglioudi is an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD and the author of a great book, Couples That Work, How Dual-Career Couples Can Thrive in Love and Work. Let me tell you a little bit more about her before we begin our conversation. Jennifer directs the Women Leaders Program and the INSEAD Gender Diversity Program and was included among the world's best 40 business school professors under 40 by Poets and Quants. Her research investigates how individuals craft and sustain their personal and professional identities in contexts that are characterized by high uncertainty. Her writing's been widely featured in scholarly journals and the mainstream press, including Business Week, the Harvard Business Review, and now this fantastic book. So with that, let me say, Jennifer, welcome to Women at Work. It's great to be with you, Laura. And um, for those who um, may not be aware of this, you're on the show from across the pond. Where are you located? I'm just south of Paris. Well, I hope Paris is as delightful as it always is. Um, and it, we're glad you're good. I can't complain. <laughs> and really glad you're joining us. So, Jennifer, as I was going through the book, you write about three key transitions in the lives of dual career couples. Are these transitions prompted by age, career stage, um, cognitive development? How do they correlate with how we go through life? A little bit of both. So the first transition is very much to do with the stage of our couple. So whether we get together at 18, 28, 48, 68, we're going to go through the first transition probably in the first five years of our relationship. So that's definitely linked to couple stage. The second one is linked to our career stage. And this hits us at mid-career. So when we've got a couple of decades work under our belt and we're really starting to rethink direction. And the third transition is more about chronological age. So it comes at a stage when social roles are changing. Maybe if we had children, they've left home. Our careers are starting to plateau. So it's as we get to the latter stages of our career and our working lives. And so talk to me about this first stage. Um, In the book, you refer to it as how can we make this work? What is this first stage and what's it about? Yeah, so this first stage comes at the end of our honeymoon period. And if you and your listeners think back to the honeymoon period, it's a wonderful time. We are in love. It's a new relationship. Everything's exciting. And one of the reasons it's so great is that we've not really faced any tests of our couple yet. We're just carrying on in our careers with our family, friends, and, and layering this lovely relationship on top. And then sooner or later, we face a hurdle. And oftentimes this hurdle might be an opportunity. You know, one of us gets a job offer on the West Coast. What do we do, right? We suddenly have to make a decision that impacts both of us. Maybe it's the arrival of a baby. Now, those of us who have children know that's really the end of parallel living. (laughs) Those of us who get together in later life, it might be the decision to, you know, what do we do about our families? Do we blend our families? How do we combine those things? And it's the first time we really need to face the question, how are we going to make this work? How are we going to structure our lives in a way that both of us can get most of what we want? We can have the careers we want, and we can have the relationship we want, and we can mix those together. And it's quite a tumultuous time. It might be the first time we have conflict, the first time we're really wrestling with something together, and really the moment we become a couple. And so it sounds like it's really about 
it's not age driven. So I'm in my 50s and enjoying what I consider a relatively young romance. We're five years in. Um, But um, like you said, it comes at this, regardless of age, it comes at the first point that you're no longer kind of in parallel play. But you have to actually negotiate something together that's challenging. Exactly. And you have to negotiate something that involves your ambition, your desires, and if you don't get it right, could lead to some regret. So there's a lot at stake at this point. And there's a, but there's a big mistake we, we make at this point. Um, and that big mistake is we tend to look at these issues and put our practical hat on and think money, think spare bedroom, think geography. Of course, all these things are important, but what's really being negotiated at that point is not about the finances. It's about power, right? Who gets the power to choose whose career takes priorities, whose dreams are supported, and whose maybe aren't. And most couples initially don't quite get to that level. Jennifer, we need to unpack this because this is kind of blowing my mind. This is big and important (laughs) stuff. And there's a lot in what you just said. So um, let's take, for example, we've got a couple, um, not unlike the amazing Wharton students that are around here all the time, unbelievably well-educated, talented, ambitious people coming together, um, each pursuing their own careers. Um, And let's say we have each one gets a job offer, but they're on different sides of the globe. And they have to start to decide how they're going to make the decision about how do they pursue this and stay together. Is that kind of an example of when this would happen? Exactly. Exactly. And what can very often happen at that stage, especially at that stage of our life when we maybe have debts from college and debts from our MBA, is we will think the solution to this is money. So if you, if we're a couple and you're on, you've got a job off on the West Coast and it pays X thousand more than me, then that's the one we should go for and I should follow you. And that is many couples' default decision criteria at this stage. Now, of course, money is important to us all. We need money to live. It's a sense of reward. It means something. But it's often a red herring if that's what you're making your decision on. Because, of course, we work for more than money. We, we find something meaningful. We want to build a community. We want to develop ourselves. All these other things play into the mix. So when we work on quite black-white decision criteria, we can set ourselves up for future disappointment. So let me toss out and see if I have a um, if I'm grasping this by testing out another example of when this may happen and where in particular the money question becomes particularly germane. So let's say we happily coupled. It's five years in. And actually, our first hurdle is that we're having a baby. Yeah. And the question of um, with a dual career couple, who is going to keep working, how we're going to co-parent and work. And there are several different arrangements that you could make in this. You talk about three in particular. Can you describe them? Yeah, so there's three basic arrangements. One is the very classic primary-secondary. And perhaps in generations gone by, this would be the choice that everyone made. And the men would always be primary and the women would almost (laughs) always have been secondary, which means the women are primary at home and the men are secondary at home. This is still one choice. It's less often gender, that gender bias now. It might be a, a woman who steps forward. Another choice is turn-taking, where we're each going to take turns in that primary position, but periodically we'll swap. And this gives both partners a chance to invest in their careers and also invest in home. And we know that increasingly men and women of the younger generations are equally ambitious at work, but also equally ambitious at home. You know, we all want a piece of the action of that parenting. And so this is a, this is a great model for that. And the third model is what I call double primary which means we're going to choose some boundaries. So let's say, you know, we're not going to leave Philly, but within Philadelphia, we can both go sort of full pelt on our careers. So it gets rid of some of those awkward choices. But within that, we can both have full careers. And what happens with a lot of couples is they fall into one of these deals as opposed to mindfully choosing it. And that's when things go awry, because when I first did my research, I was interested, which one one is the best? (laughs) Right. Better than the others. Natural question. And what I found was any of them can work and any of them can be a complete disaster. And the real secret sauce is have we very mindfully negotiated and agreed what the deal is? And that's a really important thing to do at this stage. So in that, you notice, I want to 
um, focus on a few words that you said, because I think each one is important and bears further discussion. There's doing mindfully focus and negotiate. So it's how aware are we about the decisions we're making and the drivers for the decision? Absolutely. As well as then how we talk about it. Yeah. And there's there's a lot to unpack here. And I think um, you're right, but it also shouldn't frighten people. At the end of the day, these are very normal conversations. They don't require a therapist. They don't require you know, a weekend away on a on a deserted island, although that's very nice. <laughs> they really require us to take a long-term view and to step back and really ask ourselves the question, what would make our life worthwhile together? What are the things that really matter for us? Now, this isn't the Excel spreadsheet five-year plan. This is really taking a step back. You know, what do we value? What in five, ten years' time, what are the yardsticks by which we're going to measure our lives? That's an amazing – I just want to pause for a second because that is such a – I love that as a summary of it. What's the yardstick by how we measure our lives? Yeah. Um, And so – and then some people say to me, but but Jennifer, I'm not exactly sure what I want for my career. I don't exactly know what company I want to go to. That's not what I'm saying. When, I, when we talk about yardsticks by which we measure our lives, it's not, did I get employed by this company? No. It's things like, did I have the opportunity to grow in a certain area? Was there a qualification I really wanted to do? For me, I really wanted to write a book, right? It wasn't about I needed to be published in 2019. or you know. right. <laughs> Those yardsticks are not specific planning things. They're things around the kind of people we want to become. And it may be about your career. It may also be about your couple. You know, what kind of couple do you want to be? Do you want to be a couple who's, you know, really adventurous and traveling a lot? Do you want to be a couple who's embedded in your community close to your family? If you figure out what these yardsticks are, then the decision making becomes easier. You know, if you want to be that couple that's embedded in your family, you're not going to take a job on the other side of the country, even if it pays you a fortune. Right, because you'd be going to measure up. It's not going to give you what you're looking for. Those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio here on Sirius XM 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking today with Jennifer, with Professor Jennifer Petriglieri about her book, Couples That Work. Um, so, Jennifer, as you're talking about this, um, this way of thinking is, I think, all too infrequently part of how we make decisions as young people. Is it because we're, um, especially when we look at ourselves at those stages of life or um, as we're on the fast track and particularly very ambitious young people, that um, it seems like we can make these decisions with a practical framework? Or is it that that idea of how we're going to measure our lives too abstract at that stage? So I don't think so. I think, and I, and I would also say it's not just a young person's mistake. What the mistake t- tends to be made, part of it is age, but also part of it is we live in an incredibly fast-paced world. And the speed at which we're expected to make decisions is a lot faster than it used to be. And so what happens is we then rely on heuristics, right? We rely on the practicality. Mm. And so this approach is really about taking a step back and thinking principles before practicalities. And of course, the best way to do that is to set those principles before you make the decision. Because what we can't do in today's world is say, actually, I need three months to make that decision. We don't have that luxury anymore. But if we've had those conversations up front and in an ongoing way, you know, if you imagine you're an MBA student now and you know you're graduating, um, you know, you're a first year student and you know you're graduating next year, now is the time to have those conversations. Absolutely. Now is the time to spend some time thinking that through. Likewise, let's, you know, I'm mid-40s. Imagine someone at my stage who's really quite interested in a career transition at this stage. Before you go out and look at options and start exploring options, it's time to sit back and start thinking to, okay, what are the principles? What are the yardsticks? What are my boundaries? And if we can get that sequencing right, it's a lot more helpful for us because, of course, I know some of your listeners will be listening to that and saying, well, it's all very well, you say, having these conversations, but I need to make a decision by next Friday. You know, and they're in a very tough spot because it's really hard to take the time for these conversations when we're up against the wall. 
in a way, it reminds me of, you know, don't be penny wise and pound foolish in a really extreme way. And some of this is from experience when you focus only on the practicalities and you don't make time to discuss the principles. Um, In my case, especially, it became crystal clear. It's actually been the last three books that I've read to see the things, the, the, the many reasons why my own marriage fell apart. And the things that went wrong, because we, amongst a number of things, were not making decisions informed about, aware, conversant, and in a productive dialogue about these principles. And so the practicality led us to a place where, you know, there was no surmounting the gap that had occurred. And you are so right. And I also think it's not just us individually. I think it's us as society. There tends to be a feeling that, Okay, if I need to work on my relationship, there's something wrong with it. And I would argue, if you are not working on your relationship, there will be something wrong with it. And I think we've fallen for this kind of Disney princess image, you know, where we kiss Prince Charming and we live happily ever after. (laughs) Right, it doesn't work that way. And if something goes wrong, maybe we kiss the wrong frog, (laughs) you know? No. Um, You know, this idea that we, you know, have this fairytale wedding and then everything's going to be fine, this is crazy, you know? Our relationships, I think of them as a long conversation, you know, and our careers and relationships are a long conversation. And if we think about our careers, most people would not think twice about having a full day workshop to do some career visioning or spending some time, I don't know, with a career coach thinking through direction, what they really want. But you say to people, you know, how about that for your relationship? Oh, no, well, my relationship's fine. I don't need to do that for my relationship. And it's such a false logic. It really is. So I want to also explore something here. In having these dialogues about our relationship and why it's a lifetime of work, it's not just about how we make decisions. It's really about how we navigate who we are as individuals in relationship to this other individual and and the space that we share together. Absolutely. It, we, in, in many ways, it comes down to a question of identity. We know that Although in the U.S. and the U.K. where I come from, we have this very independent view, you know, I'm, I'm a self-made person, that's actually not correct. We know that who we are and who we become is a huge function of the relationships we have. And for most of us, the, the, the relationship we spend the most time and energy on is with our partner. And so that relationship matters enormously for who we become. I mean, if you think back to, I don't know, the guys you dated in your 20s, <laughs> you know, you do this thought experiment, what would have happened to me if I married X? You would probably be in a completely different job, living in a different area, maybe having no children, more children, less children. And if you do that thought experiment, you realize actually it's not just about the choices I make. It's really about this co-constructed mm-hmm world. It also raises, makes me think about the ways that in the choices that we're making, particularly in this first stage between with parenting, you know, primary, secondary, turn taking or double primary. If we make the decision only about the practical issues, the finances, um, who's got the better health insurance, um, who has the longer commute, and we don't think about our identity, who do we want to be as women, who do we want to be as parents? Who do we want to be as partners? Who do we want to be as professionals? We could likely wind up in a role that subjugates all of those things that are so essential to who we are and how we're happy in the long run. Absolutely. And I think we need to get out of this thinking of success in terms of what looks shiny on the outside. So let me give you an example. You know, I was talking to a couple who were later in later stage in life, they were mid 50s very successful couple on the outside. So he was actually a CEO and she'd had a career in the arts world. And I spoke to him and this is a guy, extremely successful, powerful, you know, wealthy. And he said to me, you know, Jennifer, I just feel like my career has been a failure. Oh my God. How is that possible? Right. Like if he's a failure, what about the rest of us? The thing is, this is just not where I wanted to be. You know, I understand I'm privileged. I've been successful. I've had some lucky breaks. But all I've done every day is woken up and got on that train and carried on. You know, I really wanted to have a shot at setting up my own business. I also was, had, was, had this passion for going to, into the not-for-profit area. 
that I just got up every day and carried on because every day it made sense, right? It made sense at a practical level. And yet here he was, mid-50s, full of regret. How much of it? Life not lived. How much of it is that we don't have role models for making decisions with this kind of framework, especially in dual career yeah. couples? So I think that is a big issue. Partly our generation, um, I think the MBAs of today have a little bit better shot because they've got <laughs> those older than us, but our generations are really the first generation en masse to become dual career couples in a way that isn't always the woman with the secondary career. Right. So we're kind of trailblazers. We have no we have no you know, role models out there. I also think there just hasn't been the language to talk about these things. And one of the huge ambitions with I have in my book is that it shifts the conversation. It shifts how we talk about these things mm-hmm. with each other, with our partners, but also with our friends. And a lot of these things get worked out, you know, when you're with your girlfriends, um, you know, in the bar at one night or at the restaurant. And it's also how we talk about these things. Um, you know, like this show on the media, the narratives we put out. And I think they really need to change and embrace the fact that we are the new normal. You know, in the U.S., (laughs) more than 70% of us are in dual career couples. I mean, this is not a small population. This is the vast majority of us are wrestling with these issues. And um, there is a better way. It's how can we use it? Yes. And and is it um, to what degree, when we, when you, we talk about that 70% of the population, what's the breakdown of the percentage that are working um, theoretically by choice and those that have no choice but to have both people working in the household? Yeah, it's a great question. It's quite hard to get statistics, I'll be honest, that, that, kind of, that cut across that. But what we can do is, is flip that over and ask the question of those couples where one person stays at home, what percentage of those are happy with that arrangement? Which is a bit easier statistic <laughs> for us to ask. Yes, and, and I think we, a potent question. Yeah, and what we see is very depressing, actually. Now, of course, for some people, and most often women, staying at home is what they really want to do, and it's the right choice, and that's great. But when we look at the statistics of women who take more than two years out of the workforce, which is considered a significant gap, what we see is almost 70% would like to come back full time, mm-hmm. but almost 90% of them can't. Wow, that's a huge number. By the way, for exactly. those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Professor Jennifer Petriglieri about her book, Couples That Work. Um, you can find us on uh, Twitter. You can email Patty at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow me at Laura Zarrow or at SXM Business if you want to you know, chime into the conversations as we go forward. So, Jennifer, you're talking about something that's, um, I think, hugely important on multiple, multiple fronts. So one is that women who are staying at home for more than two years, 70% would like to come back, but 90% find it hard to do so. Yeah, to the same level with the same pay, and they often get shunted onto the mummy track. And what we see is there's a huge bias in the workplace. I'm not talking about a normal maternity leave here. I'm talking about mm-hmm. two plus years out. There's a huge bias once we pass that two-year threshold. It's incredibly difficult to get back in. Um, and um, and so what we see is this population of, and again, it's not always women, but it's mainly women, who are frustrated and trying to get break back in but can't break back in. And that's when we get into these cycles. Now, this isn't to say every, no one should ever take time off with their children. That's not <laughs> at all what I'm arguing. But it's another one of these things where we need to mindfully look into the future and say, how long am I going to take off? Am I really going to be able to come back in? Is there anything I can do, even if it's a small amount of part-time work, to keep my toe in the water? We tend to think of these issues very black and white, right? Mm-hmm. Either I'm staying at home with my children or I'm full-time working. 
it doesn't have to be the case. And if we can keep our toe in the water, it tends to be a lot easier to get back into the work. I faced this myself, and so did my mom. She stayed home for a long time, and it took a, until I was about 12, it took a long time for her to go back to work. Yeah. Never mind to recoup what she lost in oh, Social Security impossible. benefits and income. Yeah. And then when I was facing a particularly challenging time, my daughter was about a little less than two, um, and the only thing that was working in my life was work, and I thought about stepping back. And she said, "This every day feels long, but the years go by quickly. Don't sacrifice your career. Instead, see what you can do to adjust it. And I was fortunate that the president that I was working for at the time um, offered to let me take uh, a 40% pay cut and Mondays and Fridays off. And it kept me in the workplace. While it reduced my salary short term, there's no interruption on my resume. And, yeah. it, and it saved me and saved everything in my world at the time. But it's hard sometimes to find the language to know how to identify that and talk about it with other people. I think it's hard. And I also think this is where organizations are missing a trick. Because if we think about women of childbearing age, given the age now we're usually having children, which is well into our 30s, mm-hmm. these are people who have a real solid base of experience they have real skills, and yet they're not too expensive yet. If I can put it <laughs> right. They're not at our stage of the career where we've got expensive, right? We're senior. And so these are exactly the people we want to keep. It's not the young rookies who, you know, we can replace those quite easily. <laughs> these are people who are incredibly valuable and not yet horrendously expensive. Yes, that we've been and investing so in up to this point. We've been investing in. And so companies are really missing a trick. Now, honestly, I think companies are beginning to appreciate this and really start looking at it differently. And here is where we see trends across the globe very differently. We see the U.S. is very much behind Europe on this particular trend. But I think the U.S. is starting to move on this, particularly with the focus now on more women in leadership roles. I think organizations are going to have to be more flexible if they want to keep um, women in the workforce. And it's also a question of being more flexible with men. Absolutely. Because if men have the same opportunities for flexible work, then it eases both sides of the couple. And in fact, what I saw in my research is we tend so often with these issues to focus on the women. But increasingly with the younger generation of men, they are feeling exactly the same pinch. Because the difference between men and women here is it's pretty socially acceptable for a woman to be ambitious in her career now. It's really not socially acceptable for a man to be ambitious at home right, to, to state, mm-hmm. actually, I want to stay home with my kids for a bit. I want to work four days a week. I don't want to miss out. And that's much, much harder for men to make that claim than for women. And so what I'm starting to see in my research is a rise in these real dilemmas among the younger generation of men. So this is not a women's issue anymore. <laughs> this really is a generational issue that organizations need to get to grips with. And in in, and like so much of our conversation about how to have better representation and more opportunity in the workforce, it sounds like there's a tension between how do we make decisions about our own behavior and in our own lives while we also need the structures and systems in which we work to change. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a, it's easy to look at that and feel, oh, my goodness, I have no agency. I'm never going to sort of change anything. And sort of my, you know, my hope with the book is it really gives people the tools and exercises to, you know, use as much of the wiggle room as they have. None of us have complete control of our environment. And I think we can get ourselves into a negative cycle thinking, oh, no one's ever going to accept it. <laughs> but actually, there's a lot of things we have control of. And the book is about how do we take back control over those areas of our life where we can and use that to try and influence our environment. And I think that's that's really important for people. I agree. So in the first half hour, you were we talked a bit about this concept. I think it's hugely important of recognizing that we have three distinct transitions in the lives of dual career couples. As we talked about, the first one is the stage of our couple and the first time that we come together to negotiate conflict or face a hurdle. And then we reach a second transition that you said usually uh, shows up around mid-career. What is it, and is it at all related to what we flippantly call a midlife crisis? Yeah, 
A little bit, although I, a developmental psychologist in general, would think of a crisis as a good thing. <laughs> we know that we need these moments of crises, these moments of deep thinking to develop as people. If we stay in our comfort zone, that doesn't happen. So the second transition is all around what happens at the midpoint of our careers. So if we think about the first two decades of our careers, roughly, we are building, 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 right? We're building our career. We're building a relationship. Some of us are building a family as well, not all of us. And, um, and these, are, these are times where we're striving to get on that ladder and be successful. And then what happens to almost all of us after those first two decades is we stay, take a step back and start thinking, is this really the path I want to be on? Is this really my path? Is this really my direction? And the reason we do that is the first two decades are partly our choice, the path we get on, mm -hmm. but partly social expectations. You know, you, you go to MBA school and everyone's applying for the top consultancy. So, yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do <laughs> right. that. Or maybe you're from a family of medics or lawyers, and that seems the thing to do. Or maybe, for example, some cultures in France, smart kids become engineers. So if you're a smart kid, you're going to become an engineer. I don't know whether they all want to be engineers. but right. <laughs> and, and in many ways, these social expectations serve us well, right? They come from people who love us, who care about us. They can get us on a good track. And they, and they sound fundamentally practical, too. They are very practical. But eventually, we you know, have that feeling of waking up one morning and thinking, you know, whose life am I really living? And very often for those of us who are career-driven, this will start in our career. You know, oh, yeah, maybe I need to change companies. I need to reorient. And very soon, it spreads into other aspects of our lives. Is this really the purpose I want in my life? Is this really how I want to structure my family? Is this really the, one a place, the place I want to live? And it really comes down to the sort of more fundamental existential question, what do I really want out of my life? So, well, it may be sparked by a stage of career. It's actually more fundamentally um, an essential individual question. It really is. And it's also a time of our life when, you know, if we think to our 20s and 30s, we know life is finite, but it doesn't feel salient, right? It's not mm -hmm. yet. One day I'm going to die, but, that. but when we get into our 40s, it suddenly feels like not that time is running out, but you know, if I want to make a change, the time is now. So if I think of where I am mid 40s, if I want to make a significant career direction, it's got to be now, right, if I want a good run of the next career mm -hmm. change. And so we start essentially questioning the foundations of our lives. And this is incredibly stressful in our couples, especially when we're both doing it together. Because when I see my partner questioning the foundation of our lives, you know, is it my fault? Is there something wrong with me? Do they love me anymore? You know, is this about the relationship? It's so easy to spiral into those thoughts. And it's made worse by the fact that to get ourselves out of this developmental crisis, out of this transition, we need to move away from our comfort zone. I mean, I'm sure you've had guests in the past. How do we make a career transition? We go out, we explore, we experiment, we network, we do all these things that take us away from our safe path. And that can feel very threatening to our partners. So it's a really tumultuous time for couples this second transition. Having gone through it myself and, um, you know, I'm, I'm right on the other side of it and I saw so many of my peers go through it in different ways. And um, mm. fortunately, many of us came out happier on the other side that um, I want to ask you a question because this was certainly a personal experience that as I was going through my 20s and 30s, I mean, even starting at 17, like my daughter, I thought I was so grown up. Why didn't the world realize it? Um, but then there was a point when I stepped into my 40s. I remember waking up on my 40th birthday and feeling audacious, like I'm really a grown up now and inhabiting that space. But as part of inhabiting the space of I'm really in the driver's seat of my life, it wasn't long after that that then I had to say, wait a second, if I'm in the driver's seat of my life, is it unfolding as I want? Am I happy? Exactly. And so yeah. um, it, it felt very connected to stage of life, but also, like you said, career. And um, yeah. how long had I been in? my marriage and a, a variety of factors that that forced me and forced almost everybody I know to pause and whatever it was that was the hole inside seemed to present itself at that stage but it was very scary to it's talk about to even scary. acknowledge it 
Yeah, and I think one of two things can often happen at this stage. One is we try to push it under the carpet, right? We try to ignore it. I'm going to run away from this and it's all going to be fine. (laughs) But those of us who've been through this know that the only thing that happens when you put a cork on that bottle is the pressure builds up and up, right? Mm -hmm. And one day it's going to explode. The other trap people can fall into is knee-jerk change, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not satisfied, and this is the, you know, this is the time. What, what shall I do? Oh, I'm going to take this career path and switch. And then very often what happens is they fall back into that cycle of questioning six months, a year later. Because what's really required of us at this, ta- this stage is to sort of stand still, which not many of us are very good at, <laughs> and really have a think about, okay, what do I really want? How is this going to fit together? And how are we going to support each other getting there? And I think support is the key word for this transition because this is a stage where we need to shift the way in which we support each other. So if we think of the way we oftentimes think of a supportive relationship is we think of it in a little bit of a British kind of good old tea and sympathy way. You know, I'm going to pump up your self-esteem. I'm going to make you feel good about yourself. If something bad happens, don't worry, everything will be okay. It feels great, that support. But what it does is keep us stuck in our comfort zone. And to get out of this transition, we've got to get out of our comfort zone. And oftentimes what can happen in relationships this time, someone will say, you know, I feel stifled. I feel, um, you know, trapped in my relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's because we're trapped in this way of support. And what needs to happen at this stage is we split our support from this loving cuddle to a loving kick. (laughs) So a loving (laughs) kick up the ass, right? And what does that mean practically? It means instead of trying to dampen down our partner's anxiety and our partner's concerns, it's really acknowledging them and saying, okay, and what are you going to do about it? Get out there and explore. Now, this is not a chance to tell your partner what to do. (laughs) Okay, that's important. Advise or interfere. But it's a really chance to support them and say, I'm going to support you as you go out and explore. And I will hold the anxiety of not knowing where that may lead us. Ah, so it means, so there's a a duality of experience in this that's kind of complicated. Yeah, there is. It's a little bit of faith that if I give you a longer rope, if I can put it that way, that I have the faith that that's going to help us both as a couple. And the data shows it does. That's if a... you're feeling anxious about the transition and you pull your partner closer, this is going to lead to disaster. If you give your partner that extra rope so they can explore, they can test new things, they can experiment, they can have some failures, inevitably you're both going to end up on a better path. And for many couples, your relationship will be stronger, not just your career will be renewed. I want to dive into this. Counterintuitive. I want to dive into this a little bit. But first, for those of you who just tuned in, you are listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And today we're discussing an amazing book, Couples That Work, How Dual Career Couples Can Thrive in Love and Work, written by INSEAD professor Jennifer Petriglieri. So what you're describing to me in the way that I'm hearing it, tell me if I've got this right, is that when we're in midlife and we're approaching that point where we're starting to realize that um, we've been working within the structure of a ma- of a partnership, we've mm-hmm. been in the structure of our careers that seemed to make sense when we started them, say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and that something inside is not okay. We're not yeah. we're not feeling um, empowered. We're not feeling um, like we know ourselves at this point um, or that we even know what we want, that there's two jobs that there's a couple of jobs that need to happen here, that individually um, we can't just quit our jobs, walk away, take the first thing that seems like the antidote, because that's likely not going to address the real problem. We don't even know what the problem is. And. And then the companion part of it is that in order for our partnership to work, um, there's actually ways that we should approach this and should not approach how we work with and support our partner in order to get on the other side of this together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so what do we do with our own fears when we're watching our partner 
question all these things that are foundations of the lives we live with them? I think there's two things we do with them. One is we talk them through with our partner. Crazy concept. A crazy concept, yeah. But our fears, you know, multiply when, you know, our fantasies run wild, right, when we don't speak about them. But often when we speak about our fears, one of two things happens. One might be our partner's like, that's just absolutely not on my mind. You know, wipe it from the fear bucket. And the other might be, you know, yeah, I'm I'm worried about that too. But now that it's on the table, we can work to mitigate it. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, I was talking to actually a couple a, a, a later transition, and the the man had completely convinced himself that his wife wanted to move them closer to the grandchildren. And he really did not want this. Okay. And he, you know, was spinning it. He didn't want to talk about it. Oh, yeah, she's good. She's going to spring it on me any day. And I talked to a couple separately. And I talked to her. And it was not even on her mind. And he was torturing himself day in, day out with this concern, which was, had no base in reality. You know, they talk about that. It's gone. However, there are other things which are real concerns, right? Where are we going to live? What's going to happen? This is often the, the age of life when we have to um, deal with aging grandparents and, and things like that as well. And these are things that if um, they're real, right? But if we talk them through, we can start to think about where, where are our boundaries? And I think this is a really important conversation. And this has happened in my life recently. Unfortunately, my father-in-law passed away a few years ago. And so we have our aging mother-in-law to look after. And, you know, a lot of anxiety around how do we manage that? How do we fulfill our duty and really look after her without it completely encroaching our family? And, you know, Jean-Pierre and I have had a number of really helpful conversations around where, where do the boundaries lie? What's too much care to give? What is too little to give? And it doesn't make the fear goes away, but it makes it a lot more bounded because we know and we've agreed this is the point we're not going to cross together. And that can be a great way of managing fears. Does it also help you to sort out the difference between the emotional challenges that you're navigating and the practical decisions that are in front of you? And how can we balance those two things so we don't repeat the problem we were trying to avoid in the first stage? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think this is where the second transition really differs from the first transition. In the first transition, they're all jumbled up together, right? And we need to separate them and deal with the emotional principle first. In the second transition, the emotions really come first. And mm. they often come before we've even got options on the table. Okay. And this is when it's so important that we work those rather than straight away going to the decision. Because that's when we actually aren't dealing with the stuff underneath it. When I was reading about this section in the book, one of the things that really struck me is it seemed, um, and I'd heard this before, but it's not commonly discussed, that this is, um, sounds like a stage of cognitive development, that we're, um, if we have unresolved issues from our previous stages of life, we're going to go through this. It, 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 we can't just say, I'm impervious to it. Absolutely. These things come back and bite us. <laughs> There's no running away. They, they, they come to rehaunt us. Yes, and I also think it presents us with a great opportunity. I think um, there's a tendency to look at some of these developmental stages and think, oh, my goodness, I don't want to go through that. <laughs> but this is actually a really good opportunity in our couples and in our, and in our, um, and in our careers to have a rethink, right? to put things on the table that maybe we have been sat on for a while for the sake of the kids, for the sake of the grandparents, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And say, you know, as we're reconsidering all this, you know, let's talk about career prioritization, for, exa for example. Is it still working that you're primary and I'm secondary? Or do we want to rebalance? It's a really good time to bring everything up in the air and figure out um, how might we restructure everything so it fits together better. So as we go through this stage and we wind up, um, whether we landed in what felt like a crisis or whether we're mindfully um, paying attention to the fact that our our drivers are changing and our needs are changing and we find ways to talk to our partners, there's another transition that we're going to face um, that comes at a later stage. It sounds like probably 10 to 15 years later. 
Yeah, and this is, on the one hand, it sounds like an awful transition <laughs> because it comes when our social roles are changing. You know, my, our kids have left home. I'm no longer the hands-on mother. Our careers are plateauing. I'm no longer the bright young thing, the, you know, the acceleration phase. There's a sense of loss. But at the same time, there's an enormous opportunity. For the first time in 10, 20 years, we have a degree of freedom again. You know, we've not got those parenting responsibilities. We're not trying to madly climb a career, la- career ladder. And so we can take time to really broaden our horizons. So if you're at my stage of the career or, or younger, you know, 30s, 40s, you know, if you can get out of bed and in a whole day keep in mind your relationship, your career and your family, it's a result. <laughs> oh, please, <laughs> that's, that's a big win. A big win. You collapse into bed and repeat <laughs> if you're lucky, right? And um, and sometimes you sit daydreaming. I always do this with my best friend when we get together. One day we're going to do volunteering. We're going to be on the board of not-for-profits. I mean, that's not happening now, right? There's no way. <laughs> right. And suddenly at this third transition, we're at a stage when we can broaden those horizons before those three things, right? Family, relationship, career. We can think of legacy. We can think of community. We can think of volunteering. We can think of different kinds of patterns and different ways to express our ambitions. And if we've played our cards right financially, we'll have, and very few of us can retire at that stage, but we may have a little bit more of a financial buffer. Maybe we've paid off our mortgage or we're close to doing that. Um, You know, we don't perhaps need as much disposable income if we've not got kids in the house. So we have a little bit more wiggle room to make different choices. And so it's, it can be a very exciting time for couples to rethink, really an identity transition, who do we want to be in this last phase of our careers? How do we do things differently? In a way, it sounds like the gift that of um, the choices that we wished we could have made at young people, but we knew it wouldn't get us where we wanted to be. So that... Yeah. Um, you know, I'm facing this with my own deeply passionate, curious, politically active daughter about what's a study in college, how she wants to plan her career, how that shapes who she wants to be in the world, and also the opportunities and choices she gets to make. It sounds like the if we've managed to navigate our careers up to this point, um, the gift is we're highly capable, accomplished, um, hopefully on some reasonably safe financial footing, ideally in a loving relationship, and that those are tremendous building blocks for shaping a life that we choose as opposed to Absolutely. one where we're dependent on other people. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better. Yeah. Um, in the book, though, you talk about it also including, because in some ways it's like I can see it's around the corner, super excited to get there, even though there are parts of it that I'm sad about. Um, I'm like, I, I get a second, I get a chance at a honeymoon with my sweetheart because we're going to move in together after five years. So for yeah. us, it's early couple stage. Um, but at the same time, my daughter's going to college. I'm already sad about it. Is it uncommon to have this combination of excitement and some sorrow, a little melancholy? No, it's very normal. And I think it's actually very healthy. I think we should worry if we don't have that. If we think about this, because this is really a big life transition, right? It's us reaching that latter stage of our career, that stage where we have the maturity, we have the wisdom to build on, and really moving into those roles within our organizations as well, right? We become the mentors, we become the senior kind of steady hands. And I think there's some wonderful things about that. And of course, they're in a sense of loss. I mean, in a way, it's similar. You know, mothers often say this about the stage when their children become that bit more independent, right? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it's, whew, I'm out of the baby stage. But there's actually something nice about them, you know, (laughs) relying on you all the time. And now you're just a taxi service. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's healthy at all these life stages to be able to acknowledge the loss and also the opportunity and the new things that come with us. That's really the sign of healthy development. So as we go through this stage, because part of what we're trying to do is, you know, have these full dynamic careers, have um, be happy with where we are in life and also make our relationships work. What should we think about as we're in this um, third transition and this third stage that helps make the relationship itself its strongest? Yeah, really simple trick 
is to find a shared passion that's not about work and not about the children, that's really just about you. And this can be anything. I had a couple who sang operas together. That's not something I would have the capacity to do. <laughs> yeah, no be, one would want to listen to it, for sure, if it no, were me. No one would want to listen to it. Um, it might be a sport together. It might be volunteering together. But it's something that's just about you as a couple and that can really reground you in the sense of the couple as opposed to a broader family, as opposed to, you know, being the one who has, maybe it's the broader family in, in the office, right, that you have all these people. But this sense of there's, a, there's something to ground you in the two of you, it's really important. So it sounds like we go through um, these waves where at first we're in parallel play and we have to come together as a unit. Then there's a point where, again, we have to consider who are we as individuals inside, and then how do we find each other as those whole individuals um, to join together again in another stage of life where we can enjoy each other and it's not just about navigating the challenges. Yeah, I really do see it like that. And I, I sometimes think of the three transitions as points where we build three new relationships. Now, some of us do that with the same person and some <laughs> of us you know, do that with different people. But I think that speaks to two things. One is it speaks to the investment and work it takes to get through these transitions, but it also speaks to the enormous potential of renewal and growth in them. And I think we need to keep both sides of the equation in, in mind. I think sometimes we can put our head down and it feels like a slog, but these are also times when we can experience huge renewal and growth in our careers, in our relationship, and in our lives. Which also means that there, it brings with it the capacity for positive impact and for enormous kinds of joy. Absolutely, yeah. Jennifer, this is all, A, as you can tell, quite personally meaningful, so thank you. And it's a real pleasure thank to talk you. with you about all of this. Thank you. So for listeners who want to learn more about your book and your other work, where can they find you? So the best place to find me is on my website, and I'm going to spell it because I have a very complicated surname, <laughs> which is www.jpetriglieri.com, jpetriglieri.com. And there you'll find lots more information about the book and also all the op-eds I've written, the articles, the essays, etc., which you can download them all there. Fantastic. Everyone, check it out. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have a question about something you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our new handle, at SXM Business, and me, of course, at Laura's Arrow. I'd like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our amazing sound engineer, Dion Simkins. I'm Laura's Arrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Have a great week, everybody, and don't stop talking. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.